Hello, hello. Greetings, everyone. My name is Dennis. I am an alcohol addict. I cannot safely consume ethyl alcohol. Ethyl took over my life and beat the shit out of me. And uh, <clears throat> that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. I'm coming to you from uh, a little place just north of Kingston, Ontario. And I love Zoom World. I absolutely love it that we can do this, that uh, recovery comes into my very home now. This is, this is a phenomenon <clears throat> in my lifetime that uh, gives me hope for, <clears throat> hope for planet Earth. My story, my story begins in 1945 in May, 15th of May, the Ides of May, 1945. I'm born Stratford is a little town about 15,000 people. Um, I guess it's a big town, small city by Canadian standards. In, uh, <clears throat> in southern, uh, southwestern Ontario. Beautiful spot nestled into the Great Lakes. And uh, as I recall, the uh, uh, Southern Ontario parts are at the same latitude as Northern California. Um, it's a railroad town and I'm born to blue collar Roman Catholic practicing people and uh, both my father's side uh, works for the railroad and my mother's side works for the railroad. And I'm one of six children. My father, I'm age five and my father disappears. He's got tuberculosis. And we end up in my grandmother's rooming house they redo the attic and up we go, the four or five children at the time, whatever we were, others to be added. And uh, I'm the youngest of the oldest. I'm the third of six. So I have an older brother and an older sister. My older brother eventually takes his own life. My older sister becomes a nun and a missionary nun. and is uh, very helpful to the planet. She uh, spends 35 years in Taiwan. She learns fluent Mandarin and she works on women's rights. And that's what she's doing today. She's uh, 80 and she's working on women's rights inside the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church and I departed company many years ago, about age 12. And Lloyd tells this, my friend Lloyd here tells the story very correct. It's when you, you discover that <clears throat> things you really like to do that feels good and are fun that turn out to be sinful. And uh, all I can caution is uh, <clears throat> don't, uh, if your moms and dads, don't let your children be uh, uh, <laughs> trained in sex by uh, celibate nuns and priests. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <clears throat> and they just take all the fun right out of it. And uh, so they took all the fun out of the Roman Catholic Church for me when I was about 12, 13 years old. <clears throat> and my father being away, uh, it kind of snaps a, a cycle. I would have ended up 
working in their railroad shops like he did and his father did and the other side of the family did. And, but I kind of get to be brought up by the neighborhood kids and uh, we form gangs and we have our imaginary territories and we do our things. And when I'm a Roman Catholic kid going to school, the Protestant kids, uh, they pick fights with us and we pick fights with them. And that's just the way it is. That's how I'm raised. And uh, amongst other things in school, you got to uh, be a bully or be bullied. That's the way it was for me. So I decided to be a bully. And one of the jobs they gave me was welcoming the new immigrant kids coming over from the Second World War to Catholic school. My, <laughs> my job was to beat them up and see what they were made of. Just real, you know, kids bringing up children, bringing up children. Um, I always worked because there was no money. Uh, so if I wanted something, I had to work for it. So I had jobs around the house and then paper routes. And uh, in the morning, that was, didn't really like getting up early in the morning. He used to deliver to the slaughterhouse. That was not very pleasant. For, uh, I think it was 12 or 13 or 14 years old, whatever it was. By the time I was 16, I was working at a tire and appliance uh, store and going to school. I liked going to school. Uh, school was easy for me. I skipped grade seven. Uh, I think they just retired of seeing me. Uh, the nuns, they used to like to, to punish me, but then I learned to shrug that off too. It just didn't bother me. The whole price of uh, doing business in school, I guess, in grade school. Off to high school, uh, that was, I enjoyed high school. <clears throat> Girlfriends, uh, all of those things, uh, the normal being brought up. And in a, in a small Ontario town. And uh, <clears throat> when I was, as I was growing up, the alcohol, the black and white TVs came in and Alcohol was in the movies, it was on black and white TV, it was civilized and grown up people did it and people in our society did it and it was all part of, I wanted to be grown up so I smoked cigarettes and drank as soon as I could so I could be grown up. And I continued when I was 18, I left uh, Stratford and went to uh, live in Toronto and worked for the phone company as a lineman, digging holes and putting up poles. Uh, they did some tests and uh, about a year or so after I had started work, uh, they brought in for a series of tests. I don't know why. And after they were over, they suggested I might want to apply to, uh, to go back to school, to engineering school. So I did. I, applied to the University of Waterloo, which is uh, go to school four months, work four months, because there was still no money in the family. So you had to put yourself through, and I, I liked that. So that's what I did. And uh, I asked the people when I got there, this is how driven I am. I said, what's the easiest uh, degree of them all? And they said, well, probably mechanical engineering. And I said, great, sign me up for that. And I did a degree in mechanical engineering, thermodynamics and fluidics. So I'm, I'm coal-fired coal and steam-driven. I'm from that age. And uh, the steam railroad died in Stratford. And that's when 
a Shakespearean festival was created. So culture came into the place, uh, blue collar manufacturing, literally because the diesel engines came in and the workforce there had been working on steam engines and yada yada, just collapsed. Everything changed. That's how I get out of Stratford. So it ended up there forever, because why not? You get into your, it's, uh, you get into a rut, uh, it's called a fitness plateau, and you know how to do it, so you keep on doing it. And that's one of the things this disease of alcoholism does and of drug addiction is it blasts a hole in your world and, and knocks you off your fitness plateau. And it's only once you come off that fitness plateau that you can really crawl, climb above it. Now you can get stuck there again, but bam, when you break out, everything changes, everything can change. So I'll come to the breaking out because I'm still in the being mesmerized by alcohol because <clears throat> when I'm alignment at the phone company, we're drinking and uh, to prove that we're men, we're just kids boys and then I go to engineering school and we are we are we are the engineers and drinking beer and all this shit so my first year <clears throat> I majored in beer and bridge and only to my chagrin to find out there was no final exams in beer and bridge and that cost me in my first year of engineering school so then I kind of smartened up and uh hmm. So I cruised along and uh, uh, I was always good at doing school, turns out. And uh, so I just cruised along and then in my final year, I found some things of interest to me. Uh, I did a project with one of my professors on a blood oxygenator, which was uh, uh, the foundation of the uh, blood oxygenators that are used in open heart surgery and such like of which I became a beneficiary some years later. They offered me a scholarship to do a master's and I declined. Uh, I had a very good offer from the phone company. They offered to make me the senior design engineer at headquarters in Montreal, Canada. And uh, off I went to Montreal and well, I loved alcohol anyway. I mean, that's just what we did. We did it in university. I spent a night in jail because of alcohol. Uh, we had an apartment and uh, early back in the semester, we were out drinking someplace and we didn't have any furniture in the apartment. We decided that we'd take the bar furniture with us, the tables and chairs and whatnot. And people that owned the place uh, apparently objected to that. and. Uh, if we wouldn't have stopped to pee on the way, we would have escaped. But of course we'd been drinking and now it was just stupid as shit and spent a night in jail and yada yada. Didn't learn a thing. Cruised off to Montreal, boy, they are civilized. They know how to drink there. Plus I didn't need a car. I took the train from town to Mount Royal down to where I had a, a place to live down to the center of uh, Montreal and it was, uh, it was terrific, I loved it. In 1971, I graduated and went to Montreal and uh, 
later that year, I met uh, my, was to become my lifetime partner, which I didn't know at the time, and neither did she. <laughs> I'm surprised she stayed, but she was a codependent, as we learned. I enjoyed Montreal very much. I enjoyed my work very much. Uh, we were busy transitioning the old 100-year-old analog electronic telecommunications network to digital and uh, reinventing it. And I loved it. Uh, they asked me to go and work at one of the subsidiaries and uh, do some reinvention of the old telephone. And I said, sure. And off I went. 1973, I went to London, Ontario with a big plant down there and did that work and learned a lot of things on the way. And I drank, 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 and there was uh, no consequences at that time. I was getting away with it. And my life was uh, was blessed. I finished uh, doing that project and decided to take a leave of absence and uh, went to California, to Malibu in 1977 to work with a scientist named John C. Lilly, MD. John Lilly is uh, quite famous. We did uh, three movies about him. He wrote 12 or 14 books and he invented the isolation tank, as I think he's well known for. And he also did a lot of work with dolphins. And in this particular case, he wanted to uh, do some, <clears throat> continue some dolphin research. And he had uh, published uh, his wishes in Omni magazine, which I had read in the office uh, in London, Ontario. And I don't know why, but I got to thinking that if somebody didn't do something, our children's children were never going to see a whale. And if not me, who? <laughs> if not now, when? So I organized a trip to California and uh, tracked down John Lilly in Malibu and rang him up and he invited me to, my, to his home. I went up to his home. I read all his books, especially on dolphins. <clears throat> Lilly on Dolphins, Humans of the Sea. It's uh, quite a remarkable book and full of science and measurements that I could use. And so I'd read all of this and I'm a good engineer. So I went up and lo and behold, he's got a whiteboard in his kitchen. He's got a home up above Malibu in Decker Canyon. And uh, he's got a whiteboard in his home. And uh, we talk a bit about communicating with dolphins and he says, show me. <clears throat> so clean off some of the whiteboard and I showed him. And he says, uh, when can you start? I said, I don't know, I'll, I said, uh, I'll be back soon or something to that effect. And I phoned my wife and I said, uh, we're moving to California if you want to come. And she said, sure. And she says, and the landlord phoned today and they said they want their home back and we were renting a home. So Earth Winston's control office kicks in and <clears throat> we get a, I tell the firm I want to go and talk to dolphins and they say, fish, you're going to go talk to fish? And I said, no, no, I said, they're mammals, mammals. Off I go. Uh, we got a 19-foot trailer, ma valise, my suitcase, I call it in French. And uh, we pack up everything we can and store some stuff and off we go. 
And I spent 28 months with uh, John Lilly in uh, California. And he is extraordinary. And uh, then early on, as we start working in the lab, John says to me, uh, don't outsource me as your conscience. So he says, you know what has to be done. Let's get on with it. And uh, he was that kind of a scientist. Uh, just, he loved creativity, he loved engineers. He was a doctor and MD amongst other things. And he loved engineers because we were both hands-on people. Uh, we weren't, you know, we did a lot, of, we lived in our heads too, but he had actually, if you look at his history, he had actually, designed and built and then pounded, had pounded electrodes into his brain to study the brain. He'd done it to himself. Uh, they had been doing it to, to monkeys and whatnot, but he did it to himself to start to see what happens when you pulse certain parts of the brain without damaging them, that was the problem. And uh, reward centers and all the rest of these mapping the human brain. That, was part of what the isolation tank was about. He wanted to, he spent 10 years. He wanted to know what happens. The scientists argued when you removed all the input to the human, uh, no sight, no sound, no feeling, no gravity, that you just went to sleep, that was it. And uh, Others argued that no, there was a whole lot of dreaming and whatnot that was going on in there. And so John wanted to find out what happened when you cut off all the sensory input. And no, you don't go to sleep. It frees up so much biocomputer that you that you <laughs> that you can escape. And and a matter of fact, uh, uh, with drugs like fentanyl, which is a a deep anesthetic, uh, the software can't find its way back to the hardware. Uh, the spirit, you can't reconnect. And that's the, John Lilly, before I went into my first time in an isolation tank, and I'd been working with John probably more than a year at this point. Uh, I was asking him to, you know, what's it gonna be like? He says, I'm not gonna pre-program you, he says, and he said, uh, when you come out, uh, you'll find everything, instructions in the glove compartment, everything you need to, to run the human body. So don't worry about it. Because actually the human body runs on itself, doesn't it? It's uh, the old reptile brain runs everything pretty much. All I do is guide it and direct it. It knows how to operate, et cetera. So it's that software. And he was dealing with that software and he was dealing with the contained mind theory. Is the mind completely contained within this bony shell here or is it connected to something beyond the contained mind? And I wasn't down there to do any of that work with John. I read his books, et cetera, and I'd go to, and I learned kind of along the way, but we were doing dolphins and uh, so, I built the equipment, it took me 28 months to uh, finish it. The idea was to uh, create, I called it an interspecies phone booth. Uh, the human on one side uh, can hear up to about 20 kilohertz, perfect hearing. 
the dolphin on the other side uh, hears and speaks, uh, transmits with two voices, their stereo, uh, up to 150 kilohertz, 10 times, more than 10 times the human. And it's that 150, that's that high frequency sonar that they can use to look right through us uh, when we're underwater. What they see, quote unquote, they see the gray outline and the bones, there's some reflection there. And a huge reflection from the lungs, which are full of air. So there's almost a perfect reflection. So we look like two big airbags coming at them with some stomach stuff too. Wherever there's air mixing in, that's the reflections you get. And as I said, they can they can tell a pregnant female in the water, and they've been known to identify that women were pregnant before they knew they were pregnant. And uh, I've mentioned this before, one thing that I learned about the <laughs> dolphins, I believe that they're one of their paradigms, their social paradigms is always make sure your brothers and sisters are breathing because they consciously take each breath. A mammal in the ocean, if you go unconscious and you're still breathing, you're gonna drown. So they consciously take each breath and they sleep one side of the brain at a time. So they don't, sleep like we do. They're two, four, seven creatures and they're Hatha yoga creatures, consciously taking every breath. John Lilly found this out as along with the other scientists and they were testing the dolphins with anesthetics and whatnot. Three martinis, dead dolphin. They forget how to breathe. If our breathing was not automatic, <clears throat> imagine how many, what many drinks and you'd forget how to breathe too. But we're not responsible for our breathing because shit, I started drinking, I'm not responsible for anything. I can't manage Dennis for heaven's sakes. Dennis can't manage Dennis, it just is drink. I broke a hedonic circuit. So I work with John and I <clears throat> love Malibu and my time out is up out there. So I finished my work. Janus is the system I built, joint analog numeric understanding system. You'll find me in one of his books and you'll find that Janus written up here and there. Uh, I came back for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that I was concerned uh, we could talk to dolphins. Uh, I wanted to ask him where the pirate treasure was and the riches in the ocean and the resources because I'm that kind of a human. I said, John, what do you want to ask them? Because I was busy constructing, a, outlining a language, quote unquote, and John said, I want to ask them if they've made up a concept of God. Hmm. And meanwhile, the United States Navy and the CIA were visiting us and they wanted to know if we could ask the dolphins and the whales where the nuclear submarines were. That's what they wanted to know. And unfortunately, if we could, that was the third leg of the nuclear Standoff, mutually assured destruction, MAD, which exists to this day, the balance of terror. And uh, that drags the whales into it. So that if hostilities were to break out, the first thing both sides would do is kill all the whales. So that wasn't to be done at that time. Now with the environmental challenges, it's a different situation and I'm working on that interspecies communication experiment once again, but 
it is because the oceans are in dire straits. So I don't think anybody's Navy can fuck it up worse than it is now. So we've got work to do out there. So back I come to Mississauga, Ontario, just in time for that train to derail. And we lift up routes for a while. And but I like Mississauga very much, and I'm there from 1979 to 1981, I think, and then off I go to Asia for five years or more. And uh, no, I was there as in Mississauga in 1985. I was doing international uh, product management, uh, trying to get. Uh, we had developed a lot of digital equipment that was working very well in the North American market, but the North American market has different technical standards than Europe does. So we had a lot of modification that needed to be done. And my job was to get those modifications done and uh, help open up the European markets and the Asian Pacific markets. So I did that uh, till 1985, and then I went offshore to Asia Pacific. I was the uh, poobah in the uh, South Pacific. <laughs> Tough assignment. I've got all the islands. Uh, I've got New Zealand and Australia in the south and all the islands. And then I, uh, doing that for a couple of years, I'm drinking all the time. And drinking, I'm very successful at all of this. And one of the reasons I'm successful is you can use alcohol John Barleycorn, you can use alcohol as a doorway to any, enter any culture. They have a human culture. They have a tradition around alcohol and, and you share it and you become, ah, and everything's, ah, we become more quote unquote old human or human and we share an experience and all the barriers break down, the things you can't do in the office when you're just doing business and, you know, blah. And it works like a charm and I'm good at it. So I'm very successful. So I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, and I can come and go as I please. And so I'm in Australia for a few years and then I move up to Hong Kong. We're going into China. Uh, we've got Taiwan to contend with, uh, the ASEAN nations, and it's terrific, I love it. And I just live on airplanes and drink and do whatever the hell I want. And I'm successful and uh, my wife, then my wife, <laughs> here's how we got married. I'm in the office in Mississauga and I phone, we have a home that we purchased and uh, she's working part-time and I phone her. Uh, we've been together or 11 or 12 years by that point in time. And I said, I just accepted a position in Australia. And if you want to come, we have to get married. See, I'm a romantic. I just love doing this the right way, down on one knee, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, way to go, Dennis. So she, I guess it was the lure of Australia. It wasn't really me. She mentioned we get married. She said she was standing there and just as we cut the cake and she says, what the fuck am I doing? She didn't say that to me for many years. <laughs> so off we go and she basically runs the planet side trip. She moves us from uh, Canada to, to Sydney, Australia, and then from Sydney to uh, 
Hong Kong, and then from Hong Kong to Melbourne, Australia, and then back to Sydney. And then I finish up out there, quote unquote, as I said, very successful. And I am transferred to the US headquarters to manage, amongst other things, global accounts, which are the great big multinationals that have, <coughs> we're going to build in communications networks anywhere they are in the world. Um, now, fundamental to all of this is why we're doing this is not pure um, profitability, although it's profitable or you can't continue to do it. But the idea was broader than that. The question we asked was, what if everybody on the planet Earth had a telephone and they could talk to each other? Would they be less fearful and would we avoid what happened in kind of the previous hundred years? I'm going back to 1970 when I'm talking about this, when we had these discussions. A uh, hundred million people were killed in our wars in the previous less than a hundred years. And the question was, what if we could communicate? What if we were less afraid of each other? And along with that, uh, a few years later came uh, packet switching and building networks, the first one east to west in Canada, so that commerce and communication would travel east west, not north south to the United States, which is what had been happening. And Canada had been getting diluted in terms of its information resources and data carrying and whatnot. So <clears throat> we were building these networks, and now we were building them for our customers all over the world. And we were kind of in a unique uh, position to do this because we had created much of the digital world and uh, we knew the interfaces. And so we were quite nimble and off we went and did that. So I'm down in the United States and uh, at our US headquarters and a couple of things happened. Uh, number one in 1992, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act comes into force and through the work of a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, alcohol has become recognized as a disease and you can't fire somebody for having a problem with alcohol. So that's one good thing that happens because shortly after there's an intervention at work and I'm in my corner office and carrying on and doing my thing. And at one point in time, I was responsible for <clears throat> the Tucson Open. We were sponsoring that. And, all of our customers coming. I had done uh, international yacht races and I'd been involved in a lot of stuff and alcohol was always a big part of it. And now all of a sudden what is happening is that people were getting drunk at not our company and this was why we stopped doing it. Our events, we go to a company event, you get drunk, you kill somebody on the way home, you get sued, the company gets sued because they got you drunk. And they've got resources, et cetera. So their lawyers, our lawyers said, shit, stop with the alcohol. Uh, we're going to get sued. And uh, <clears throat> I'm one of the dispensers of alcohol around the place. And boom, I get busted. And rightly so. I'm a menace to self and others, and I don't know it. Intervention at work. Bill Wilson said, break those egos down deep and bam, it broke my ego down deep and pop, uh, as Marcy would say, the sound of my head coming out of my ass. What the fuck happened? 
And what happened is I was just taken over. I was mesmerized by alcohol. I had no idea. And I've learned since that I was in denial. I wasn't lying to myself. I was incapable of knowing the truth about myself and alcohol. Alcohol knew me better than I did. It was with me all the time. It was incredibly intimate and wow. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I thought it would look good in my corporate record. Uh, I had no interest in this place, uh, all the God stuff coming down. And uh, I was fascinated with some of the characters in the rooms. I'm in Nashville and literally there are cast characters from the country shows, Hee Haw in particular. I'm in Nashville, so there's country singers there and people of renown. There's a uh, Vanderbilt University, there's professors there, there's everybody. And uh, wow, I'm fascinated. Because I've kind of been in love with cultural anthropology since I was in California. As I was studying California as a precursor, all the trends were coming from California in the, in the 70s and 80s. And I wanted to study it as a precursor state. Uh, where did, how do you, how do you get in early on market changes and they were coming from places like California so I was fascinated in that and wherever the hell I was going in that story just got completely lost <laughs> which is not unusual oh I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous so these are my early meetings and uh uh, they gave me the AA guarantee, which is really good. They said, Dennis, if you don't take the first drink, you will not get drunk. And I'm an engineer scientist, and I tried all kinds of things, but never not taking the first drink. Don't drink here, don't drink there, don't drink this, don't drink that, don't drink on that, until you got to shut the itty-bitty shitty committee up in your head, and you just drink whatever you are, wherever you are, you just drink. So they gave me the AA guarantee, if you don't take the first drink, Dennis, you will not get drunk. I thought, shit. John Lilly had taught me, if you're going to enter into these situations, uh, uh, find out what the belief system is, and if it's not harmful to self and others, adopt it as, as if true for a year and see how it works for you. So I adopted AA's system as if true for a year and the 12 steps and what they meant and worked with alcoholics and got to know people from the heart and got to meet emotions and humility and things that weren't celebrated in the corporate world that existed in these rooms. Connection and companionship, that wasn't allowed in the corporation. We have to, you know, off that person next week. So, you know, everything is kind of, or traveling offshore, the people didn't mean anything to me. I had a, came in, I have what I call a compassion deficit. Uh, people are just useful trade objects. Um, and it's part of becoming human again, humanizing. And that's what's happened in the rooms. I have the most remarkable sponsors. Uh, I get sober in the uh, 10th of May, my last drink around sometime before that, in uh, 1994 in Nashville. And uh, 
they say don't make any big decisions in the first year so i don't uh but one year into my sobriety i take a package from the corporation i'm 50 years old and i retire i retired to florida and i started an airship company with blimps twin engine blimps i'm sober and uh it's a man I used to work with in the dolphin research area. He's now a biologist with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And his idea is get a hundred foot blimp with a couple of engines on it and study manatees and see why, uh, what we can do to help humans stop killing them because we're running them over right and left in Florida. So I said, sure, that sounds like a good idea. What the hell? <laughs> well, off I went. And uh, that's what we did for the next couple of years until we didn't anymore. You couldn't, uh, <laughs> you couldn't afford to have that much fun on a continuous basis, believe me. And it was a lot of fun. Um, after 9-11, uh, things changed so much in America. And I am an American citizen. I'm a dual citizen now. I still vote. I still pay a lot of attention to what's happening in my adopted country. But we wanted to get uh, closer to Paula's mom and dad. We're on their eldering journey. My mom and dad are gone. And uh, she wanted less traveling. I said, why don't we go back to Canada? So off we went to Canada. And uh, this was in 19, sorry, 2003. And we moved to Prince Edward County beautiful part of Ontario, very special. And uh, I should have mentioned, sorry, before I left California, that I, sorry, Florida, that I met the most extraordinary people in Alcoholics Anonymous there that were tr my true sponsors uh, in terms of helping me find out who Dennis is. And one was an old US Marine who was agnostic. Um, I asked him to be my spiritual advisor, my spirituality sponsor, and uh, he was quite surprised. And he said, why? I said, because your spirituality is not cluttered with concepts of religion. Um, and it was true. He was just, he was, what he had been through had cleansed him of all belief systems. And he was down to earth. Uh, <laughs> I saw a piece by Young, he's 85 years old, and Young says, I'm beyond belief. And they said, what do you mean? He says, I know. And my friend Dick was beyond belief. And he said, there's three types of agnostics. He says, there's the agnostic that says, uh, I don't know, which is agnostic, not knowing, Greek. I don't know, and I don't believe there is a God. And then there's the agnostic says, I don't know, but I believe that there is a power greater than myself or God, whatever. And then the other that says, I don't know whether there is or there isn't, and I'm going to live my life uh, to the best of my abilities. And if there is one, my life is my story and my record. And if there isn't, what have I learned? What have I done? And what I've learned from these 12 steps, I'm self <laughs> I'm uh, self-centered, uh, of course. I'm in this for myself, or not in for myself, but in enlightened self-interest is what I call it. 
the 12 steps as uh, <clears throat> having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Uh, so I would like to be spiritually awake. Apparently I wasn't when I arrived here because I lost my helmet, my backpack, all the instructions of how to handle the planet side trip. And I ended up here in a surf suit with no software and shit. Uh, so I'm going to try not to let that happen next time. I'm going to, if there's any choices to be made, I would like to do that. And I'd like to come back as a dolphin. I think that would be really a neat trip on planet Earth. And uh, dolphins don't drink. And like I said, three martinis dead dolphin. Uh, so Dennis can't even do one, mar one martini potentially dead dentist, but the problem is that uh, one martini, one drink, and I'm a menace to self and others. And it's the end others that was never an intention of mine. I never intended to harm anybody else intentionally. And my disease reached out and harmed people, my wife, my friends, my colleagues, uh, planet Earth. And now the karma that came from that 30 some odd years of ignorance, um, I now have 29 years of, uh, of being part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that karma uh, washes away the unintended. So my sobriety touches everybody just as unintentionally. Oh, I've got a cat saying hello. Hello, sweetheart. This is Miss Kitty. Maybe you can't hear her, but that's her. That's Miss Kitty. <laughs> she adopted us, came out of the woods with her sister and, uh, and adopted us. Just as I came out of the woods and came into Alcoholics Anonymous and adopted uh, all of you, I call you my extended dysfunctional family. I've never been happier to have an extended dysfunctional family. You are definitely my kind of people. I love you. Uh, it's not a word that I ever said uh, before I came into uh, these rooms. <clears throat> I, I love didn't mean anything to me. It was just a word. And now I, I know what unconditional love is, doing the right things for the right reasons because it's the right thing to do. And I'm not done with the dolphin work. Uh, I'm actually busy at it. Uh, I'm 79 years old. I've never had more fun. I've written a six-hour documentary uh, on how to get back to do this. And the experiment, in this case, a communication experiment, would be with women that are already working with dolphins in uh, a uh, uh, facility, uh, one I have my eye on in the United States. It is a not-for-profit. Um, and the relationships already exist and the working language exists with whistles and tweets and hand signals and all the rest of it. And I just like to have them be able to hear each other and talk with each other and uh, just see what happens. But especially women and dolphins. Uh, women, and, women have an empathy with these creatures, which is, I think, is much more uh, connected than usual men. That's all I'll put. This is not every male, but women, there's something special that happens with women and dolphins. And 
I've seen experiments to, that prove that, and uh, I'd like to continue that work and see if we can help the uh, whales restore the oceans because the oceans are the lungs of planet Earth. That's where we get 60% of our oxygen. And the oceans can actually mediate uh, the uh, temperature rise on planet Earth. And we can help the whales do that. And in Montreal this year, sorry, just the end of last year, uh, there's an agreement now, 30 by 30. Uh, the United Nations calls it a treaty with nature. And 30 by 30 says that uh, by 2030, that 30% of the high seas, we want them uh, appropriately uh, protected. Uh, and uh, so that we uh, help the uh, whales to restore the whale society that was so successful until we started the longest hunt in human history. 100 years of whaling, beginning with using them as a fuel source for our lights and lamps and for perfumes and whatnot and food and the rest of it. And we've got a long way to go to put that right because the oceans are critical. That's, that's the lungs of planet Earth, as I said, of spaceship Earth. And uh, <laughs> there's no escaping this one. I love it when Jeff, Jeff Bezos went off on that big dick rocket. He's Bezos, okay, but it was just that big dick rocket. And there was a GoFundMe page to keep him there. I just think, you know, billionaires in space. Well, most of us are going to have to stay here. And if I'm going to stay here and I want my children's children, I, we don't have any children, my wife and I. She wouldn't trust me to raise them, to be around to raise them. And she was right. I was too busy running around doing my thing, being big shot Dennis, full of me. But now our children's children, uh, they deserve a chance. And I want to see if I can help them get that chance. And you're helping me stay centered on this journey because it's not easy. And I love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here.